0: kids would literally pick up the statement winning trophies and medals is important to me and they would throw it away they would literally throw it away and go "Nope, not important winning the league important to me Nope, not important the top statement by a mile trying my hardest is more important than winning and and I did this with Boys, girls, top of the league, bottom of the league, professional game, grassroots game, inner city, urban, like uh, uh, the full mix of everything. Kids are driven by wanting to be with their mates, to meet new friends because they love the game. But trying their hardest is more important than winning.
1: Hello to you all and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. If you haven't tuned in before, then I'm chuffed that you've joined me. If you have tuned in before, then you'll know this podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it, people who have supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth. And so now to this episode's guest. Have you ever found yourself stood alongside parents or coaches Who are shouting and barking instructions to children playing sport? Or have you ever found yourself bursting out with commands or subtly taking your child aside to say, just do this? If we have done this, or if we have seen this, or felt that urge to help, but done so in a clumsy way, then we've been an influence on not only a child's interest in sport, but their willingness to try. This week's guest is Nick Levitt. Head of Coaching at UK Coaching, an expert in talent development. Nick has had a fascinating career coaching children in schools, in socially and economically deprived areas, working to develop the paths of young talent in the largest governing body in the UK, the Football Association, and now a broader remit to coaching across the sporting landscapes. In this episode, I talk talent development, I talk coaching, and the very essence of supporting people. And Nick's insights are edifying. That is, they compel us to take a moment to reflect and learn how morally, ethically, and intellectually we're supporting and developing others. Not just aspiring young sports people, but actually I think that the lessons apply to our wider influence to the people around us. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Nick. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm. I'm coping. How you? How are you coping under this lockdown?
0: Yes, yeah, a strange time, isn't it? Really, and uh, I, I think coping is uh, is probably a good term to use. Generally, I think me and me and the fiance are are, are quite happy being at home and. When somebody said, look, you have to stay at home, we're like, "Okay, that just fits with what we quite like doing anyway. So uh, it's not been too bad from that side of things. Um, Homeschooling is generally a shambles. And uh, yeah, I think probably I I don't know a single parent that has breezed through the delights of that. But it's, it's certainly an interesting period that we can kind of look back on in history, I would suggest, at some stage. Not yet, but at some stage we will. (laughs)
1: <laughs> isn't that funny that that uh, if we're working in this sort of area of coaching and and teaching that we find ourselves as just <laughs> rubbish teachers during this time we've, and suddenly we've got this massive disproportionate respect for not only supermarket workers but but teachers that handle these the the, the crowds every day absolutely thanks so so much for joining us and um i'm really keen to to get into a number of key areas that you've got sort of deeper expertise in and um I'm, I'm keen also to get just a bit of a bio from you would you would you mind give us a rundown of your career and uh, life's probably a little bit too rich but but that would that would be cool
0: yeah sure so I kind of uh... I, football was my main sport as a as, as an, an athlete, I guess, um, and I and I came through playing at Crawley Town, and but realised I I was never going to kind of make the grade, and uh, despite playing in the first team there, I never kind of thought right, well this is going to be the career for me. So I went off to university, but not knowing what I was going to do, did a sports degree. Probably when there was lots of people starting to do sports degrees, but there wasn't really the exit routes. So. I basically played football for three years and came out with a degree as well. That was, that was largely... <laughs>
1: That's the order of priority, was it?
0: I think it was. And it was, it was a great experience from that side of things. And my first role was in uh, sport as a sports development officer based at what was a specialist sports college at the time. And I'd just done a summer coaching in, in America and spent three months over there in California and Nevada and came back mainly because I missed playing. And I had the opportunity to stay out in America full time. But it was the playing side of it that kind of drew me back. So I, I went back to Crawley at the time, but then I needed a job. So, so yeah, a first job was in sports development. And ironically, at university, I, I didn't do the sports development module in my third year because my, it was only over my third year that counted. And the, you strategically selected lecturers that were going to give you a guaranteed 2-1 <laughs> and, and the lecturer that, that did the sports development module was notoriously difficult and was dishing out two twos and thirds as, as a matter of course. And I was like, so I, I think I picked something that didn't interest me in the slightest, but it was a guaranteed two one. So there was some strategic thinking going on at that stage to plot, I love my, that. plot my, <laughs> my out.
1: <laughs> my, my, my daughter's in her GCSE year. And so obviously the teachers are, are, are awarding grades. Based on what they think they were going to get, and, and I'm saying this is a massive lesson in getting on with your teachers, getting on with the people looking after you.
0: Oh, without <laughs> doubt, without doubt, yeah. So I ended up moving from uh, from home in Sussex up to Milton Keynes and worked at a specialist sports college that was a that was based in the, the most deprived ward in Buckinghamshire, and it was a fascinating experience. I kind of did a bit of team teaching of A level work and a lot of primary school transition support and kind of developing extracurricular work and the first thing I did when I when I got there was I learned all the swear words in Urdu and Punjabi because (laughs) that was that was often what kind of came my way I think probably because my lessons were that bad but you know we used to have um, mounted police on horses on on the school gates we'd have kids coming back after lunch break drunk we had all sorts of kind of challenges with different racial tensions between Pakistanis and Bangladeshis and Bangladeshis and whites. And it, it was it was a real kind of, it was an eye-opening experience, but a fantastic one. And, you know, I worked with a lot of kids that had some incredible characters. And we had a lot of teachers, we had a high turnover of teaching staff, but they'd all disappear off to the posh schools in Milton Keynes. But they'd come back to to the school I was at because they'd get there and realize that the, the kids had less personality. You know, and, you, you know, the teachers would say they'd go into a room and all the kids would stood behind the desks and they'd put their chairs up when they needed to and they did all their homework. That's way less fun than some of the kids that I had to work with because you just never knew what you were going to get from day to day. But it was, a, it was a brilliant experience and and doing everything from, you know, table tennis to hockey to gymnastics, as well as football, basketball, sports that I might have had qualifications into coach. But football was the main thing. So I left there to go off to a county FA as a football development officer and do similar things about kind of setting up coaching programs and coaching courses, et cetera. And led the team there for three years. I think that's probably 2001 to 2004. And then I went to a national role at the FA where I was at the FA then for 14 years and did four or five different jobs at my time in the FA. But again, it was it was a, a fantastic experience. And for probably what is, I guess, the biggest governing body in the country that's a, a huge oil tanker. You know, I was involved in some pretty fun stuff and, and did some really, really cool projects there. A lot of work with setting up young leadership programmes, uh, taking kids around the world, you know, to go off to train kids in orphanages in Africa and Trinidad doing some work on young leadership and HIV awareness through football. Um, I then set up our five to 11 national skills program. So I had 94 full-time coaches working in a program for me, kind of delivering work in primary schools and after school kind of skill centers across the country, which was fascinating. Before doing some work on the playing formats of the country, small tidy games, changing the approach to competition. A lot of the kind of the child-centred work, I guess, that probably drives my ethos and way I do things. And and then spent a few years working with the England youth teams and Talent ID, uh, kind of under 15s through to seniors, mainly on the boys' side. We did a bit on the girls' side, but mostly on the boys' side of the game, um, all the way through the pathway, working with Gareth and AD, uh, the seniors and 21s down to 15s with the with the youth pathway coaches. So, yeah, a really interesting experience there working with some, some good people. But alongside that, I always coached as well, whether it was grassroots teams or I did six years working at a Premier League Academy with some some talented kids that just they liked football, they played football where they did because they were just pretty good at it with exactly the same motivations that any other 10-year-old kid had across the country. They were still there to make friends. They were still there because they loved the game. Um, And then, now head of coaching at UK Coaching, so now it's across the whole Olympic pathway and beyond. Wow, Mm.
1: what what a journey! So, can I? um, I should probably be asking you questions about your experience at the FA and that elite sport end, but I'm I'm back to that school in Milton Keynes that I'm interested in. But Mm. you, you mentioned about how how that the experience affected the teachers how did it affect you and how did it define your philosophy because that that sounds and I probably I'm asking because I've had a similar sort of experience I went to a rough comprehensive school and having gone through then university and and for you know higher levels of education, I genuinely think that that my character was galvanized there, which was just how to read people how to work with people. Uh, to, to sense a tension in the room and get out of there quickly, or <laughs> to stay put—those sorts of quite hot experiences that I had every day. How did it shape you?
0: It—it's a great question. And looking back, I think it's it—it's probably been the foundations to probably shape my views of working with people and. The some of the kids that I, I I worked with, you know, they they weren't bothered about the sport and they weren't bothered about school in the slightest. A lot of them, but but they just wanted to feel that they were valued and you knew who they were. And at a similar time, I come across a guy called Russ Qualia and he he spoke at a conference and and I kept these notes. I've still got them now, and this was in. 99 i think he spoke at this conference and some of his work around student aspirations uh really kind of hit home with me about how much do i know these kids not not what they can do on a football pitch or on a basketball court but how much do i know them as individuals what are their hopes and dreams what do they want to try and achieve in life and it really started to kind of shape how I could use sport as the vehicle to help them achieve what they wanted to go and achieve by, by allowing them to develop the skill sets through sport. And I can still remember we had a, a year eight Milton Keynes schools football tournament. And I used to go in uh, to meet the year eights preschool. So we'd meet at quarter past seven before school and we'd just go in to play five-a-side because it was a five-a-side indoor tournament. And the kids were like, well, we've never been coached at all. So I said, okay, well, let's, let's work this out together. And the key thing really in that bit was together. Because I'd also come across this, it was called A Ladder of Participation by a guy called Roger Hart. And it was all about how at the kind of the bottom rung, it was everything is done by adults to young people. And as you kind of work through it, you get into this, tokenistic bit of, well, we'll ask them, but it doesn't really make a difference because we've already decided what's going to go on, through to kind of shared ownership and co-creation. And it it was me thinking, well, why have I got to make all the decisions here? And I kind of then started to make me think about the coaching and the approach. And with that kind of group of kids, it was right, what do you want to achieve? How are we going to do it together? But it was a massive building block, I think, in, in shaping me just thinking about them as people not as anything else beyond that
1: mm. that that sounds quite um a, a philosophical as much as pedagogical approach about how you just treat or work with people i suppose in a position of of responsibility tutoring or teaching that the the fault is just to instruct uh, just, just do this. Is that what you're referring to at that bottom lung, rung of the ladder, as opposed to just because you're younger, just because you're, I'm, I'm in charge, inverted mm. commas, uh, that that coaching approach, genuine coach, coaching and supporting aspect of, of a leadership model, is just as valid,
0: uh, I, without doubt. And I think you get you can you can get different outcomes. So. I can remember one of the teachers telling me that with, with the year 10 bottom set PE group, basically all she had to do was survive that lesson. (laughs) And so I can always remember remember telling me that her, her approach in in the basketball lesson was if a kid missed, they did a lap basically because she just wanted to try and beast them just to, to knacker them out. (laughs) So, so they didn't then go and take that energy out and fight in each other. Um, but it, and sometimes there's a time and a place for you know different approaches. But I think the, the critical bit is knowing when and why you're going to use different approaches. And I think because I I wasn't classed as teaching staff, and the fact that they just called me Nick, you know, it 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 put you at a different level to having to call them Mister this or Miss that or etc. So you you automatically had a kind of a different a different kind of power dichotomy going on between the relationship with you and them. As opposed to them and the teachers or the head teachers or you know senior leadership team etc. So it definitely it definitely influenced the approach that I took.
1: Yeah, and how much did that carry on? Did what what was the what was the sort of footprint of that philosophy? How did you take that on as you started to work at governing bodies like the FA or to UK coaching now?
0: Yeah, well, I think I was also and I. I I went through that kind of formal coach education process where I'd gone through my level two and then I did my UEFA for B the level three course. And, and at that time it was still very much command style, stop, stand still. Let me come in and show you, um, this is how you do it. Now you go and do that. And it influences the way that you work because, you know, if you want to pass that level two or level three course, you you need to be shown to be copying in a way that the tutor that delivers that. And, you know, a lot of the tutors that I went through those courses with were pretty old school dinosaur coaches that that's because that's the system they come through. And I was kind of still trying to find my way to I think there's a different way to do this because of probably working in a school experiences that start to to shape me. But you you kind of go back into, well, the FA are telling me this as a young coach, early 20s. And if the FA are telling me this, surely this is the right way to do it. But you kind of have that tension between that's never going to work with some of the kids that I work with right now versus the most important governing body and people of England telling me how to do it. But you then kind of sway back because you're influenced by some of your coach education experiences. But it wasn't really till uh, I, I may, the main thing probably was 2007 setting up this this national coaching program, and I was really fortunate that I had coaches around me as national coaches and player development people at the FA that were able to to go no look you know th- this are things we want to think about in a player-centred way and a player-first way. And, and people, a guy called John Allpress, who was one of the national coaches and, and influenced player development, a guy called Craig Simmons, um, that neither of them were, the Craigs were tired now, but just fundamentally changed the way I viewed the world. And I think, you know, for young coaches growing up, if you can find somebody that can have that impact on your coaching in a mentor coach developer kind of way um, it, it you don't realize at the time but it will massively influence how you think about the world people like Pete Sturgis who's still there now that kind of leads that 5 to 11 kind of area people like that are are, are huge to coaching systems um I did what was called the youth coaches course 2005 i think with john Old press and, and rob Thorpe And if people don't know Rod, Rod Hmm. was the kind of the forefather of teaching games for understanding. And, um, and I went through this week long course with them at Keele university and I come out and my head was blown in terms of just an incredible approach to coaching where you learn so much and you didn't think you'd been coached because it was all about the environment that was created. It was the questions that they'd asked you. It was the games that they put together that you realise you come out and you've learned so much. And I think they they were both influenced. Um, and I was always keen to go, right, well... So, so John Allpress is a big figure from coaching for me, right, was right. well, who influences you to get this you know, mentality and way of thinking? And he took me to a woman called Lynn Kidman. And Lynn is... Uh, a Kiwi. She's retired in Australia now, and she's got some books on on athlete center coaching and um, developing decision makers. And again, you know, I met Lynn at a conference, at TGFU International Conference in Vancouver for five days. Like, there's worse places to go for a conference, by the way. Mm-hmm. And especially if, if if I managed to negotiate three days to acclimatize before I got there. Um, nice work. Yeah, p- it's pleased far with that. away. It's a long way, time differences, yeah, yeah, you know, and there's whale watching and stuff, you know. No, there's um, no
1: point in going otherwise.
0: <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> and I spent five days with Rob Thorpe, uh, Dave Bunker, uh, John Alpress was there and Lynn Kidman. And uh, and it was, it was a lot of academics talking about CGFU and the research behind it and who was doing what. And some of the practical sessions there were, were rubbish. You know, there was academic people that weren't practitioners trying to put things into practice. And we saw a handful of sessions that we come away thinking, yeah, they were great. But I sat with Lynn and spent a lot of time with Lynn. And we were in this lecture theatre and this this woman was doing a keynote, professor somewhere, I can't remember her name, and who was telling you all about interventions and practices and blah, blah, blah. And 200 people in this room and Lynn just put her hand up and said, how do you know that that kid wasn't just about to work it out for themselves? And there was this just stony silence across the rooms. Everyone went, oh yeah, she, she's probably right here. And we're trying to tell kids what to do without allowing them the opportunity to work things out for themselves. Um, and then, we have, then she came over and did a year at Worcester University. And she was, she was the, the kind of the mentor developer of like, Wayne Smith at the All Blacks. You know, so if you've got people like him going to Lynn for advice, you know, you're kind of working with a pretty smart woman here. And Paul Holder, who, who, who's back at the FA, actually, again, it's a big influence on my coaching from a coaching perspective. He's a, he's a genius when working with players. He's mad as a box of frogs, but as, as, as a coach, he's fantastic. And, and he walked into the room with, I'm sure it's probably uh, a book you're familiar with at times, called with, uh, Richard Schmidt, Motor Learning. It was a massive, big, thick, hardback book. And Lynn had never met him before. And Paul was pretty influential. And he's walked into this meeting and she's never even said hello. She's just gone, what you got that for? And he's gone, well, I'm writing this course about you know learning and development. And she went, waste of time. And he went, oh, well, I just paid £45 for this book. And she went, well, it's going to make an expensive doorstop for you. And, and, and she went, what's it got to do with coaching? She went, it was done with elite athletes in a lab with a VO2 max mask on she went, what's that got to do with being on the grass with seven-year-old kids when you're trying to do this? She went, it's nonsense. So what's the point? And from that point, you just kind of go, okay, you know your stuff, right? That's where we're starting. And people like her that I kind of met along my journey just hugely then influenced everything we did. Mm. Because you just go, it's about coaching and it's about people.
1: Oh, I've got a bunch of questions based on that now, but can, can you just clear up TGFU for me? Just so that anyone who's
0: listening in is yeah. not familiar. So teaching games for understanding. So previously, and this came from 1982, Rod Thorpe, Dave Bunker, Len Allmond at Loughborough University as people that used to train teachers. So you still see it now. Well, you have to learn something in isolation. Uh, so I'm going to do, in my world, in football, I'm going to dribble a ball to a cone and I'm going to do a... Uh, a step over or a turn to beat the cone and then go back. And then I'm going to do it against someone that semi-opposes me before I do it in a game. And then when you you kind of go through this technique, skill, game approach to learning, whereas TGFU, Teaching Games for Understanding, the approach was, well, let's teach kids the principles of the game and then help the technique and skill emerge from that. So they did a lot of work in racket sports. So they would teach kids right with a a big f on a badminton court, right, to score a point with a big beach ball. The ball's got to hit the floor, and they'd just throw it over the net. And what they were trying to teach kids was about how you had to move the opponent around the court in order for the ball to land. So if I if I'm going to score a point against you, I'm going to throw the ball to the back of the court to send you to the back. You throw it back, and hopefully I can get there quick and then just drop it over the front. But what I'm learning is, well, that's the principles of how to win a match playing badminton. And then they might start to talk about some technical stuff about like, well, here's the shuttlecock now. So how are you going to find a way to get that to the back of the court? Because you now know the principle of beating Steve is I might send him to the back to give me some space. So what type of shot am I going to have to use when well, I'm going to have to hit it high and up? OK, so how are you going to manage that? So it's principles of the game going into technique to learn the tactics and it's a very different approach to learn a skill in isolation, now learn it in, in a bit more of a practice. But we used to do this at schools the whole time. So my learning of the layup in basketball was a long line of kids, yeah. you know, yeah. 15, 15 at one end, 15 at the other end. You'd take five minutes to get another go. You'd, you'd run up, you'd take two steps and you would got to throw it off the little cross, the little square behind the ring. And then you'd do it with somebody stood there And then they put you in a game and then you go, well, this technique ain't going to work because somebody massive is now in the wave. They've got their arms up. I'm coming in from a different angle. I didn't learn that. And everything that you'd spent ages learning in isolation just doesn't transfer to the game. So teaching games for understanding is definitely something I would encourage people to look for as an approach to coaching.
1: And and again, it's quite a... It's an experience-led approach to things, isn't it? And And I do wonder just how... How effective our—I mean—you started talking about teaching your your six-year-old about you know whether it's maths or whether it's or numeracy whether it's geography or whatever it might be. We're, we're learning all of these elements in in isolation, uh, and we don't know the relevance of them. and And then you come out thinking, I'm not quite sure what I know, or I don't know whether I I know anything that's of use or importance. And and then you get out into the big bad messy world, and it feels like a big, a big shock to the system. Then you start looking for things that you might be able to use again. Mm. Uh, is that a, you know? I'm I'm sensing a similar sort of parallel there about how we actually learn our subjects as opposed to uh, getting out there in the big bad world and then starting to think I need to know more about this, or I need to develop my skill to uh, hit a a smash, for example, as you say.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting now when you look at some of what's coming out of Finland and the shift to their educational system, and they're always well held up the finish as, as, as leaders around education. And they've now gone to project-based learning. So it's not subjects in isolation, is we're going to learn something about a project in the real world, and we'll draw out the different curriculum elements that might have been learned in isolation through that. And I don't, it's really hard in the kind of homeschooling COVID times now to have the time to do it with my son when I'm trying to work as well. But he uh, he gets sent maths, English, reading, handwriting, fairly kind of generic stuff from the school. Trying to get a six year old boy to practice handwriting is just largely impossible. But some of the stuff was like, right, well, he, he loved, as every kid and I certainly do, like, can we make a den, daddy? Of course, let's make a den. And you know, a theme of castles. Okay, well, let's try and make the best castle-type den and let's measure it. What's the differences in size of it? And, well, if if that's the roof of the den with a throw that is attached to the back of the sofa and jammed a load of cushions in it, right? what can we put on top of that throw that's going to collapse it or what will stay on top of it? So we can start to look at things like mass and measuring and weights and all of those kind of things but through a concept as opposed to, right, let's just look at the numbers and measure it because it just doesn't encourage him to do it in the slightest. And at the moment he's obsessed by Minecraft and, you know, he's, he's motor learning of moving a buttons on an Xbox controller is phenomenal speed because he said, as soon as he says, right, can you play with me? Like I'm lost, but he's, he's doing stuff I'm like, right, well, try and get him, right, you've got to do your handwriting practice. Just no chance. But right, you can watch two YouTube videos on Minecraft and then you're going to have to write about something that you've learned on there. Because it's something that's captivated him and got his attention. But he doesn't realise that we're high-fiving each other behind his back going, yes, we've got to do some handwriting practice. <laughs> but but that's what he needs to do in different ways that, you know, he's getting motor fine motor skills through moving an Xbox controller and building stuff and playing with Lego and all of those kind of bits and pieces. And he's getting a little bit of applied through writing about Minecraft. But that kind of learning through stealth is, is what we have to do. But yeah, it's really interesting, I think, now that the approaches in coaching mirror some of this as well. Because if I said to Callum now, right, you're going to practice, practice writing your A and then your B and then your C, and then you can write a full word in a full sentence. He's just going to go... Yeah, that's not fun, and yeah. and I think a lot of the same as when we're teaching kids. Honestly, we're not. It's not about kids. It's when we're doing anything with anyone. People will do it if it is just more fun. I've never heard anyone that I work with go, "Can we stop doing that? Because it's just too much fun." Like no one says that. So if we can do something that is inherently enjoyable, and and I get that fun is different for different people, but if we can get something that has a level of enjoyment, whether we're working with elite athletes or We're working with young kids trying to learn something, it has to be the basis of what we build that program on. Mm. Yeah, I love that.
1: And um, maybe he needs to pull together a, a set of instructions or um, a, a notice that goes outside the castle that could be a little, a nice little posh handwriting lesson. Exactly,
0: um, yeah. yeah. He, he drew a shield that, that was there and a flag that was going to go on top of it. So I was like, Well, what? what what words would you put on this flag? What? How would you describe it? So again, he's like, you know, he's writing stuff above there, and he's named his home school with a with a flag and a shield, and you know, but he, but you have to kind of do this stuff if you're going to capture the attention of of different minds, you know. And what type of what type of triangle is this flag?
1: <laughs> is <laughs> yeah, isosceles. No, 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 no. Stop trying to educate me. Just let's let's
0: have fun again. Well, he um, did get sent, he, he gets he got sent something from the school, which was a. Uh, a BBC bite-sized game, and it had it, it gone past my knowledge of verbs and nouns into, like, subconjective like, I don't know, mate, just go back and play Minecraft. <laughs> Some of it is, is frightening, but what it has been useful for, interestingly, is I've learned a lot about continents, and they've gone into the family Zoom quiz every Friday. A lot of year one learning. So, yeah, it has its uses.
1: Recycled material. Absolutely. All, yeah, nothing new under the sun. All right, so so give us some some insights as to now now you're in this this role of head of coaching at UK Coaching. We're in this strange situation where coaches have have lost the the very essence of being face to face with with athletes. And so, what are your observations and what's the feedback from the coaching community about about the challenges that they're faced with at the moment?
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a number of things, and uh, the first. Uh, interesting. We've obviously kind of touched on it already. The first thing that we have to do when we when we're starting to engage and work with coaches at the moment is we've just got to check in and find out how they are, because for a lot of people, coaching is not their priority right now. People have been furloughed, um, people have lost jobs, and you know, for us to then go right, well, you have to learn this or you know, focus on this, it, it's just not a priority. So, so understanding. And asking those questions, I think, are probably more pertinent and relevant than anything at the moment. I heard from from one lad who works at a football academy, you know, they're contacting parents saying, your son hasn't been on the uh, the, the system that they use for four days. Can you tell us what's going on here? Like, and parents have exactly that, furloughed, lost jobs, all sorts. It's probably not important to them to make sure their, their son does that when they're trying to survive and work out how they're going to feed the family and pay a mortgage. So... It's, it's definitely a, an interesting time in terms of that way. What we have to do from this period is, is, is take reflections and work out what has been good and what have we learned that will be beneficial for the future. So there's, I, I think people are connecting more and creating new partnerships and getting input from people from outside sport a lot more into what is a kind of a systemic coaching programme. And things like that we have to try and retain. Uh, there's a lot of the feedback has been there's more willingness and appetite for virtual learning, for digital communities of practice and engaging with people in different ways. And, you know, we spoke previously that, you know, it, it's it's a shame it's taken a world pandemic to for people to realise that the value of digital learning is can be there. And, you know, you don't have to travel three hours to a workshop to sit down with people, when actually you can probably have a, a similar, I don't know if it's as effective, but a similar experience in different ways with, you know, decent webinar platforms with breakout rooms, so you can go and do tasks. And you can go through a similar process. So uh, I, I think it's there's a lot of those kind of things that that have come out, and making sure that we have uh, a flexible learning and a blended learning approach is what's is what's really crucial, but also balance that with probably just because of the times that we're in, but you know that kind of digital fatigue of you know i'm not sure if you're too dissimilar but you know life on zoom calls or Microsoft teams at the moment is just nonstop and It's hard in different ways to previously. So it's what we can learn that we need to retain forwards, I think. But definitely it's that blend, I think, that we're learning that's the crucial piece now, is what does learning and assessment look like in the future for governing bodies? And how do we support them with that? Because there's definitely an appetite from governing bodies now to say, what core competencies can we learn about coaching, about the environment. So whether it's community clubs or schools or high performance, and the, the people that we work with as a population group, what can we learn about them <clears throat> offline or through workshops, online in different ways, as well as in situ, uh, you know, the working with people in the real world piece, and it's about how we have a blended approach to learning in the future. That's definitely the messages I think that are coming for us at the moment. Okay so
1: so what I'm hearing there is the that s- supporting the coaches is is first base it doesn't sound too dissimilar from showing genuine interest to the the kids in your school in in Milton Keynes and that's it, just start with the person first and foremost mm. um and do you think do you think there's a, a a chance to sort of reset thinking what I'm hearing and feeling more broadly across business across sports to say it's not just the the shift to say online meetings or no need to travel as much it's it's something quite deeper about maybe maybe we should just change fundamentally the how we work um and and taking this as an opportunity to to reset thinking or are you sensing that we might just default back to uh more time more is better approach that, that perhaps we were falling into that trap before
0: yeah it'd be really interesting to see i think what what elements get retained strongly in, in cultures moving forward. Um, so I live not far from Gatwick, and the biggest industrial estate in the country is down here, and most of it is airline travel-based staff. And they think this will be the hardest-hit industry, as you would expect at the moment, and have, have the biggest impact. But a lot of the businesses over there, and a lot of my friends that work in those worlds, you know, they have these huge offices, but they're recognising that if people are set up to work from home, why why do they need to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions a year on office premises if work can be done in different ways and working from home? I think people are inherently social anyway, which is why we live in villages and towns and, you know, with others. So I think people will still want the social thing of people coming together to work in a space. But it might not be five days a week. I think people might do it two or three times a week. Uh, And working from home will be much more of the norm for those people that might have just been used to a nine to five in the office. So it's going to be really interesting to see what elements are retained and which ones aren't. Um, I think we can't get caught up in thinking everything we did previously was wrong. We have to look at what what the good elements from from then and from now, and but I definitely think there will be some kind of um, evolved model of what it looks like moving forwards. Be really interesting to see, you know, roll forward a year, two years. Have people just gone back to normal as it was before? You know, my first test will be getting around the M twenty five at half past six. In the morning, <laughs> and if it is carnage like it normally is, then you know very little's changed. Or is it because people are uh, not using public transport as much, and there's a shift in in the movement of people around things? Um, look, I, I, at this stage, we're guessing. It'd be really interesting to see, but um, I, I think if if we link it back to the worlds that we live in, coaching is a people business. And in most cases, it is working with people in situ to help them get better at something. Um, so that will continue to get done. But I think there, there, there'll, still, there'll be a lot more virtual learning that goes on. So one of my friends that's a golf coach, so he's got players uh, that he works with around the world and he doesn't need to go to tournaments with them. Um, he doesn't need to go to every coaching session with him because he gets a lot of data through TrackMan and other kind of... Posh, funky gadgets now that, that that can inform some of his learning, but he's still got to be able to develop a relationship with people because that comes first and foremost. Everything that we do is about people, um, and you know the quote of you know people don't care about what you know until you know that they then they know that you care will still be there because people want to feel valued, part of something, and uh, and know that they're what they're known for being a person themselves. So. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what bits we do. But I think coaching will still have those kind of core people functions at heart.
1: Mm. Yeah, I have sort of similar cyclical thinking, really, in the sense that uh, for, on one side, meetings and Zoom meetings, I always used to th- push back at meetings that were scheduled for for eight hours when actually it probably needed eight minutes. Um, mm. so, so the effectiveness of that. And then you'd go on a Zoom meeting and... and uh, and you're doing it for remote working purposes. This is pr- prior to COVID, and everyone's gone off to. I, I've gone to an, uh, I've gone to a wind tunnel. I've gone to the noisiest cafe. I'm just drying my hair, and yeah. I've, and everyone's got their microphones uh, on. People are probably going to develop a different skill set uh, of being able to undertake those meetings and engage with people. And I'm conscious about uh, coaching. And I'm always on the lookout when I'm talking to, to athletes, but also that, that the, the observations that you make when you're not talking to them or you're not uh, engaging with them, where perhaps their head drops um, or they might be tending to an injury that they haven't mentioned yet. Uh, some of these subtle mm. symptoms that people exhibit, but they don't mention it. And so the face-to-face Zoom, right, we're having our discussion now. How are you feeling? Like, give me the report. You, you might miss some of those those little observations um, that, that are essential when you're face-to-face. Or I wonder whether we're going to de- develop the skill set to be able to spot that when something's just not being talked about. <clears throat> it's going to be interesting because I
0: think it's going to it's going to have to develop a skill set in people that makes them Ask those questions to get to a deeper level with people, um, because you can have a fairly surface level conversation through the phone. Uh, it it goes up a level when you know you can see somebody. Uh, we did some research about webinars, and ninety two percent of people multitask and do different things when they're listening to a webinar, as is probably happening right now. You know, so if people have zoned out, switch back in. Um, mm. So the video being on again flips it up a level, but I think people are going to have to start on that kind of one-to-one coaching basis really starting to ask the questions about how you're feeling what you're doing tell us about this you know tell me more about this go on well what else is that making you think feel about that? I think people as from a coaching process are almost going to have to learn the skills a bit more of what is probably an exec coach, business coach type person to connect to a people level beyond just the, you know, tech-tack tech, physical type stuff that they might have been good at previously. So there could be some interesting outcomes that come from that. But again, it's it's going to have to be a different skill set that coaches are going to have to develop. And um, so
1: that sort of more holistic uh... I'm still searching for a better word than holistic in that sense, but but multi-dimensional aspect of the human performer, and um, I mean, how how well are we doing that anyway? Um, when I think of the number of people that are sort of locked into academies and pathways, and I'm curious to sort of almost wonder how how effective we are. Perhaps often too 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 often leading with content here's the content of the session. This is the structure of my session. You referenced some of those early qualifications where, uh, you, you get trained on the, the technical tactical aspects as opposed to being able to support the person first and foremost.
0: Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, when, when we look at academy pathways, um, yeah, they're interesting places to be, I think. Um, and I think, as a coach and as a as a as a player or an athlete, going through those, um, I, and I don't. It, it, if my son happens to be good at something, I still don't know whether I would like him to be in one or not. Um, I mean, you know, it will be a conversation that that we would have between us about what and why and such like. but And and I think I would probably ask really difficult questions of the academy. They would hate me there as an academy parent. Yeah, you'd be parent. really
1: annoying as a parent, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah. they'd be like, yeah, let yeah, just keep not him away. Yeah. <laughs> Your son's yeah, got talent, but, but we're not having you involved.
0: <laughs> yeah, there'd be too many why questions coming from me, really. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely of the view that academies and pathways uh, should be teaching kids' skills uh, that are going to serve them for life, not just the tech tech stuff. Um, so I look at kids in you know, in football academies in my world and you know, 12, 13-year-old kids, they say, right, you have to play this formation because this is what the first team are playing. And I'm like, the first team manager ain't going to be there in 18 months' time. And by the time they hit the first team in eight to 10 years... The game will have shifted and evolved and changed. So why are you getting hung up on a formation that they have to be playing now? Because that's what the first team are playing. It's a nonsense. If the academy is then saying, right, well, we're going to focus teaching your son about adaptability because that's what he's going to need in life. And by the way, he'll probably need that in sport because the game will have changed and shifted and evolved and We're going to teach him about a learning mindset. We're going to teach him about being a team player. We're going to teach him some stuff on emotional management. I'm like, yeah, I'm all in. Like if that's the outcome, because we know such a small percentage of of kids in in academies and talent pathways are going to ever go on to be elite. It's such a tiny percent. We have to have this responsibility to teach them to be better people as well, because 100% of them are going to be citizens of this country. And the first club that says, "Right, that this is the outcome for your son or daughter in this talent pathway and their experience," I'm all over that, and 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 the the people that say, "Oh, by the way, we're going to mess them up and we're going to stick speed bumps in the way that's going to make them fail," and here's the support that is there we're going to help them with the skills to deal with it and we're going to support them afterwards but we're going to stick in speed bumps to make them fail I'm like yep I'm all over that as well and some of the stuff that has done the rounds in the last couple of weeks from Man United the letters that have been sent out from parents uh, to parents and kids from the club because you've got good people that think about kids first you know Man United is a club and what they do with kids getting through to the first team and I don't know how many games, that ridiculous quantity of games that they've had now, thousands of games where they've always got kids from their academy in, in match day squads. It's because they think about people first. They've had a legacy of someone like Tony Whelan who's been there for hundreds of years as a player and then as coaching staff who just thinks about the values and the rights of the child. And now you've got someone in there like Nick Cox that's doing incredible stuff that He's just saying, look, let's not worry about football. Go and climb a tree. Go and play different sports. Go and do other stuff. And he's driving that. I mean, those people are the diamonds in sporting systems in this country. Without doubt.
1: Uh, I love that. 100%, 100% uh, are going to be citizens of the country. That's, that's a massive statement. That. But um, a couple of questions on that then. Um, isn't there going to be an application and a transferability of that resourcefulness of that child who is who, going to grow as a person, develop self-esteem, be more resilient. Isn't that going to transfer to the game regardless of our responsibility to them as citizens beyond perhaps their
0: playing career? Um, in some cases, I think. So we, we talk about how, you know, um, and you hear this nonsense argument from coaches at times that want to justify their own being that, you know, f- f- sport teaches you about winning and losing and life is about winning and losing. So I'm like, OK, right. I, 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 I understand where they come from with it. And on a coaching course that I ran once, uh, before lunch, I did a spelling test right? So I had... I'd, Handwriting lesson. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> stealth again. Um, I had uh, 20-odd coaches on this course. And so I said, right, we're going to do a, a spelling test before lunch. And it was things like pterodactyl and people going, oh, shit, what, well, that had a P in front of it. I'm like, yeah. Um, and, and, and none of the words were easy. So I, I got all the scores and people went off to lunch, come back from lunch. So I was like, right, um, does people want to know the the... The, the scores from the spelling test. And they was like, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Okay, right, well, I'm going to start the scores and I'm going to start with the person that did the worst and I'm going to put that on the leaderboard as the first name, all right, the person that did the worst. Do you want me to put all of this up now? And then people were going, when there was like ones and twos, people were like, okay, right, we don't need to see any more. That's fine, we're done, we don't need to see any more. And I'm like, thought sport taught you about winning and losing, You know, you should be fine with this because you tell me that it's all about winning. And by the way, there's only one winner because that's the nature of a league table is that there's only one winner. But I thought you've all played as grown-ups, You know, I thought you've learned these lessons, haven't you? They're like, yeah, but we don't want to know it because we're publicly getting humiliated in front of our peers. Um, But isn't that what you're telling me now that this teaches you and what you're meant to have learned? They're like, yeah, but we don't like it. So why are you saying it's all about winning? And we started to have this really good conversation then about what are the values of children when they play sport? Why do they play sport? And we have this model in, in sport across the world where we apply an adult model of thinking onto kids' sport. But adults have a different mindset and a different view of the world. So they would always say, well, it's, you know, kids think it's about winning and losing. Well, I did 200 workshops and focus groups across the country with kids, focused in that kind of eight to 12 age group to say, why do you play football? And it was a task. I gave them 16 statements. And and again, like, you know, people that are listening, feel free to do it with your own, you know, kids that you might work with. So I gave them 16 statements and they're in little groups of three or four. Uh, and you've got to pick the top nine reasons about why you, play, why you play football and get rid of the other seven that aren't important to you. And then the nine that you get, put them in rank order in a diamond with one at the top, then the two, then the three, then a two, then a one. So we had a bit of a formation to it as well. Um, and it was a real mixture of intrinsic and extrinsic statements. So you had things like, I I, I want to meet new friends. I love being with my mates. I love playing with the game. I love love playing football. Scoring goals is important to me. But you also had stuff in there like winning the league is important to me. Winning trophies and medals are important to me. And it was fascinating because kids would literally pick up the statement, winning trophies and medals is important to me. And they would throw it away. They would literally throw it away and go, "Nope, not important. Winning the league important to me. Nope, not important. The top statement by a mile, trying my hardest is more important than winning. And and I did this with boys, girls, top of the league, bottom of the league, professional game, grassroots game, inner city, urban, like uh, uh, the full mix of everything. And and then I'll go somewhere and then uh, I went up to the Northeast and they said, "Look, oh, we've seen some of your research. Our kids are different. You've not spoken to our kids. They don't think like that. I'm like, What do you mean they're different? Like they've got two heads. So I went into a load of schools in Sunderland and Middlesbrough. Same tasks, exactly the same outcomes. But kids are driven by wanting to be with their mates, to meet new friends because they love the game. But trying their hardest is more important than winning. But we then had a league table that starts in September and finishes in April. So eight months of that kid's life when they were seven years old You know, like, that's almost a year of their life to find out the outcome of a competition. Now, most seven, eight-year-old kids have got no idea what they're doing next week, let alone, oh, by the way, you're going to find out the winner in eight months' time. Like, they just don't cognitively think like that. But what we did was we we applied this adult model onto kids. And the big thing that we have to start to do is just to go, well... What drives kids? How do we understand kids? What are they interested in? And whether it's in an academy or a grassroots club, whatever the sport, you have to go back to thinking about that kid first. And I don't think enough academies and pathways do that. And it's still an area when... And where we can probably do a lot more work, and I appreciate that's an absolute ramble and a soapbox moment there.
1: No, it's a massive, massive statement, and I, and I'm just curious as to kind of feeling that passion that that you're talking about. Uh, I can feel the the intensity in your voice, but but I'm curious to know why we aren't already doing this. Why aren't we already there? What? Why is it that we're teaching kids? Eight years old. What the first team are currently playing. Why aren't we already thinking that that we need to set them up for future success rather than? I mean, they're not going to be parachuted as an eight-year-old back into the first team just in case. And why 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 is it that we default to to the to the now and the short term uh, of quantifying everything? What's 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 underpinning this, Nick?
0: Well, I think uh, I definitely I would definitely say it is getting better. A hundred percent, it's getting better. You know, the work that uh, there's a group of people called the FA Youth Coach Developers that go into professional clubs to support coaches. You know, the work that they're doing there is much better. Uh, there's, but there's still ground to be made. A lot of it, I think, in my view, comes down to adult ego. And uh, coaches want to be able to say, on a Monday morning to their colleagues, yeah, my kids' team won eight nil at the weekend because it makes me look amazing. Um, when in reality, it's not what the kids want. The kids don't want to win eight nil every week. Again, one of the questions that we used to ask the kids was: Would you rather win? Uh, would you rather win by a massive score every week, or would you rather win or lose three two? And they always go for the win or lose three two because they recognise there's no value in for either team in winning eight nine ten nil. It was a pointless game. Um, because what would kids do? So if you play football on the playground at school, Steve, what would you do if the score started getting too big?
1: Yeah, you'd mix it up, wouldn't you? You wouldn't. You'd, you know, you want to see a tight race, don't you? You don't necessarily just want to see Usain Bolt trouncing. Some some overweight Me. chap uh, <laughs> that you want to see a tight race, don't you? Yeah, of course
0: you do. So so kids have worked it out, but but adults can't. So kids would move things around and go right. Well, Steve, you're the best player, so you're worth three of the other team. So it will be eight v eleven, but and if the eight start winning by four or five, right, right, one of them you're going to have to go on the other team to even. Kids have worked this out. But we don't. We just go, well, look, it's about winning and losing because that's what life's about. But it, it's some of those things, again, that I, I think a lot of it is driven by ego. And I spent a long time, in, like I said, in grassroots football and in professional game. And I would see coaches. I, I used to call it PlayStation for dads. You know, they would literally, it was almost like they had an invisible controller in their hand and then moving kids about the pitch, you know, Steve get up there do this move across do this like shoot pass and they're literally hitting X and Y buttons on their little controller telling the kids what to do and and I used to get loads of stick when I worked at the academy because because I used to take a, a little stool. it was a fishing stool. I bought on eBay it was £1.50 it was brilliant I had it for about three seasons until a kid called Ryan sat on it and broke it um, but it was brilliant because I just used to sit down and watch the kids play But the parents were like, well, what's he doing? Because the parents' view of a coach was Kez, you know, the film from the 80s. It was their view of what a PE teacher did. It was their view of watching match of the day. Therefore, that's what a coach should be doing. Whereas my view of a coach was, well, I can't, if if I'm standing up, I can see a totally different picture to a 10-year-old kid on the other side of the pitch. But if I've done all the work in training and... Match day is just an extension of training. That's the test. You know, we do all this work in training to see if they can do it in the test. Right. Well, we've worked on playing out from the back. Okay, cool. Let's go and see if you can do it. And then we'll have a break in the game. We'll come off and you can tell me how you thought you did about it. And if you want my help, I can give you a little bit of help. And I'll sit back down on my stool again. But parents' view of what a coach should be, you know, sometimes then the coach has to play up to that stereotype or... The coach watches match of the day or Sky Sports on a Sunday or a Monday. And, right, well, that's how, you know, a coach behaves on the side of the pitch. Jurgen Klopp does this and Pep does this. And they win, so that's what I've got to do. But but they're all working in a different world, in a different context, in a different environment where people's mortgages are on the line and multi-millions are at stake. Like, they don't have that at, at Faygate flyers up the road with their under eights. You know it's a very different world, but it, it's it's what they've learned, it's the bias and socialisation that's gone through their lives that that plays out with the dynamic that they then exhibit on a Saturday or a Sunday.
1: Okay, so you mentioned adult ego there in in that sense of of feeling as though they could kind of report a result that keeps the wolves at bay or that that currency of results uh, is the essence of of their own effectiveness or their worth. But I mean, how much do you think it's underpinned by the culture that that comes down from the top or the leadership that defines the the success? I mean, before we started talking, you before we started recording, you mentioned uh, what you've what you've experienced from your boss under these sort of lockdown conditions about setting the tone from the top. What are your thoughts on that within clubs?
0: Yeah, I I mean, when I when I worked at the academy and. I went into the academy and I said to the to guy, "One, we're talking about what I was going to do. And I always worked with nines, um, tens, 11s, younger age group, because that's what I enjoyed doing the most. And I said to him, look, after a game on a Sunday, when you phone to find out how the game's gone, if the first question you asked me is what was the score, I said, I'm going to quit. Because it, it makes no difference to me. It makes no difference in the slightest. Um, kids will be competitive and certainly kids that are playing football in, in talent pathways, they are very competitive kids. They want to win. Um, but the score doesn't define whether or not they've played well. It doesn't define whether that kid has improved. It doesn't define whether they've tried to apply some stuff that we've been working on in match day. Um, so it, it helped that I had somebody there that made a difference and, and kind of understood where I was coming from. And... Um, and and we talked about kind of the environment that I've got at the moment through through UK coaching. I mean, COVID is a really challenging time for a lot of people, but I've got a, a direct line manager and a chief exec who they just call to check in on people. And, you know, the chief exec's weekly update says, take a break, go for a walk, get out in the sun, spend an hour with your son or daughter, go and do stuff. And... Um, Ultimately, uh, you know, coming from, from the FA, you know, you had a set of values that were decided by the board and the exec team and they were, po- they were imposed on all the staff and you get given a mug with the values written on it. And like, it never works because you've just got given a mug with the values on it. You've got no idea what they mean. And the system only works when it gets tested. Um, and I'm now in a place at UK Coaching where we have a set of values that we've all agreed, that we all buy into, and they get lived daily. And it, it makes such a difference when you have a, a chief exec that, that and and my boss Emma that that works in that kind of way. But I think I'm also fortunate that I'm surrounded by, you know, a team of people that we're trying to work in a particular way where we're trying to get rid of hierarchy and everybody just like, no one is more valuable or important than anybody else. You're a human. You you have the same value as another human, which again is fascinating at the moment with everything that's going on around the world with some of the racial stuff that's going on. Um, but that's how we set the team out. Like I, I have a role to play that is different to somebody else. It doesn't make me more important as a person. Um, so let's try and scrap that. You know, people just have to be clear that my role is more strategic in the thinking and I get the pleasure of reporting to Sport England and UK Sport, who we do a lot of work with. I basically go in and report what everyone else is doing. I'm a bit of a fraud, really. I'm just saying that I'm not doing the good work. These guys are doing the good work, but this is what it might influence coaching in the future. And again, it comes back to that. We, we link it back to coaching, I think it has to has to start to be the the mindset that we approach sport with as well. Um, that my role as a coach is just as important as your role as a player, whether you're eight or you're twenty-eight. Um, but ultimately, the players are the ones once they step over that white line; they're the ones that have got to go and play. They're the ones that have got to make decisions. Um, so it can't be all about the coach. You know, the days I think of. You know the coach's king or the coach's queen are are gone, and you know we've got a generation of young people now coming through that want an input into the decisions that affect their lives, and I don't think that's going to be any different from a from a sport perspective. Okay,
1: so I mean, just a couple of last questions then about.
0: It's the, quite cathartic, it, this, by the way, Steve.
1: Yeah, you get it, all, <laughs> get it all out, Nick. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always available. Just give me a call, just, and I'll just say, what do you reckon today? Um, what. <laughs> What what do you think, this is a big question, whether it's from UK coaching or your own philosophies, what what do you think of the future horizons? What are the untapped territories that that coaching, understanding, coaching development, uh, philosophically around sport, what what would you love to see being explored over the next decade or so?
0: Mm, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I I think if I look back, probably... Fifteen years, uh, I was probably part of the uh, s- seeing sports science come in and uh, started to take over the world. No disrespect to sports scientists. Uh, no, no,
1: I'm, I'm aligned on this one.
0: No, don't, you don't need yeah. to apologise to me. <laughs> um, and we, and I think we've got a lot of people working in sporting systems now that that really understand the body and how it works, which is vitally important. Absolutely. It's an, it's an essential part of it. I don't think we've quite maximized the uh, the bit between the ears yet. I think that's the next frontier that we have to start to really understand um, and value the, the impact of psychology and <sighs> And moving away from it being, well, like you only go and see a psychologist if you're broken and they fix you. But that's not reality. And actually start to consider how a psychologist can start to help coaches and help athletes and players, um, from a performance basis and start to add value to, to the, the circle of people around a particular player and an athlete. So changing that kind of view of them, I think is really important because it's the bit that I think we can have the biggest impact on coming up. But equally, I think, philosophically, it's the big thing I would love to see is people as athletes and players, regardless of age and stage of development and where they might be playing or or whatever they're doing, it should be commonplace that they have an input into what is going on. Um, You know, and, and I used to see and worked in a system where, you know, I say, well, we're, we're really player centred here. And I'm like, but are we? Because you've decided the time, we'll you know, go away on an England camp. You go, right, well, so you've got to report at 9.15 for wellness. You've got to report at 9.30 for strappings. You've got to be here at 10 o'clock to start training. You've got to, be like, you've decided the timetable. You can tell them when they can fart, breathe, go to the toilet or sneeze. Like, but you're telling me you're player centred. Um, so I, I, and there's definite shifts in that sand that I can see into much better way of engaging players, but um, I still don't see enough of it. And it might just be because of my view of that um, the, of the world in that way. But I'd love to see much more of a co-created environment between players and coaches. Uh, that, that I think has to be, if we're going to truly develop people, um, it has to be the way it's done. And, and seeing some programmes on now that, you know, we, we've watched Harry's Heroes over the last few days. And you see some of the challenges that ex-professional footballers coming out of the game face. But, all, but ex-athletes in any sport transitioning into uh, civilian life, for want of a better term, when they're not a full-time athlete or player anymore. You know, and, and I hear of players that you know, they've got no idea how to set, set up their own bank account or register at the doctor's or apply for a passport because they've never done it. Because they've got you know, a player liaison officer that's done everything in their whole life for them. But, but the, you know, the divorce rates and the bankruptcy rates of, of people leaving football are huge. But we have to start to help people with life. And we have a fantastic opportunity through sport to develop these skills, but it has to be part of what we do, not apart from what we do. So how we factor that into programmes as well as the tech-tack physical pieces. You know, you can't just have a pathway that focuses entirely on character because you'd have a load of really nice people but were hopeless players. That like That's not going to work. <laughs> like, you kind of need both, but... Um, but it has to come from that that humanistic perspective first and that's just my view of the world you know love it love it
1: brilliant what a great note to finish on uh, i loved i've loved uh, the conversation it's been really useful for me it might have been cathartic for you but it's been mm. fascinating for me so um loved exploring the different frameworks and examples and philosophies that uh, You've discovered and learned through that experiential learning, but uh but you're now utilising to develop others. So thank you so much, Nick.
0: No problem, look Steve. It's a, it's a pleasure. And you know, I've I, I've had the pop the, the podcast as a uh on my subscribes list for a while. So oh, you're the um, one. You're the one. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, it, I, I'm quite picky with those as well. Good. You know, yeah. it's and there's a lot of stuff that's non-sport because I think a lot of a lot of sport podcasts are not done very well but yours is one that's retained its place on there so so to be invited on as a guest is a huge honor so thank you for the invite no not likewise
1: now nick has got a superb blog called rivers of that i would urge you to to have a look at he's also really active on social media so you can follow him on twitter at n that's a double t